0: Welcome to STFU, SEAL Team Flicks United, our show all about SEAL Team Flicks and what it's all about. My name is Don't Dis the Hype, This Boy Can Snipe, Mike Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, he gets his kicks from doing those flicks, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing quite well, Walker. So, on today's show, we're going to talk about games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, and the feature game of the week, guess what, SEAL Team Flicks, and our topic of when to get rid of board games, and how to do it. Are we going to say what the name of the podcast actually is? I suppose.
1: It's kind of like one of those situations where you get married and you change your name, right? So the podcast's sort of bachelor slash maiden name is so very wrong about games, for those of you that are just joining us for the first time. If so, I apologize. Not just for the fact that we're playing fast and loose with what we're called, but just generally for everything we do. So for the sake of clarity, let us specify that...
0: Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. Alright, so this week, what did I get finally to the table? Cthulhu Wars. It's been out for a while. It's giant plastic, you can't miss it, and I've yet to play it. But finally got it to the table, and I thought it was a great game. Had really interesting mechanisms, giant plastic, tons of different asymmetrical powers, the way it all acts together, combat was good, didn't look as though there was much king-making. All-around great game. Cthulhu Wars. Cthulhu Wars is one of those games that I immediately dismissed when I saw it on Kickstarter.
1: You know, you see that volume of plastic and you immediately think this game is going to last three or four hours and not be any good. And so I missed it when it first came around I, and I've, I've gotten involved in the game afterwards when I was able to try it on a friend's copy. And it really is quite surprisingly good. The game should be terrible in a, in all number of ways. But for me, this is actually Chaos in the Old World done right because they're extremely similar games. It does many of the things that Chaos in the Old World does, but a little bit more open, a little bit more flexible. It's more flexible for player count. It's more flexible in terms of turn structure. It's not one of those games where you're locked in to combat at the very end of the round. There are fewer unfun combinations. One of the things that happens in Chaos that I don't like is someone might play a card that says, you don't get to do anything here this this region. Like, no combat this region, or... Your special power doesn't work here. So, Cthulhu Wars I really enjoy. It's a, it's smarter than it looks, which is to say it's not a brilliant game, but it definitely is more clever than it should be. And, as you say, just the sheer volume of asymmetric factions means there's a lot to discover in any given playthrough. And so I'm very, very pleased with it. The third onslaught is going to be hitting, you know, sooner or later. Something about Chinese New Year, I guess. And then there's going to be yet more variety to the game. And so at that
0: point, we'll have nine playable factions. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, too. I just want to touch on quickly something that this company's doing that not a lot of companies do. Like when there's mistakes in the game or things that need to be fixed, some companies just truck right along and say, hey, you have to pick these up at tournaments or whatever. But apparently every time they put out a new expansion or edition, then they give you all the updated components and apparently upgraded components now as well. It's not at the
1: fastest timetable. But it's definitely better than the alternative of not doing anything. Yeah. So they've gradually been—it's it, it, weird—they've been gradually upgrading some of the other components because it's one of those men, uh, one of those times when a publisher expresses befuddlement, and I really think they should have seen it coming because Clue Wars has these tremendous figures, both in terms of size, quantity, and quality. And the player boards initially were just cardstock, and the tracks still are cardstock. And people said, "No, no, we we would like thicker." better quality components for the player mats and the, and the player boards, they're like, why? And the answer is, well, because. I mean, people are going to expect that kind of bling. It's not even necessarily that we assume that every copy of the game should should ship with its standard, although, to a certain extent, that is happening. I always find it mind-boggling. It's the same thing with Jamie Stigma. I was like, why would you want more combat dials for the new factions? Well because they were there to begin with and there are certain expectations that get met so yeah it is the case that Peterson Games uh, which by the way is the company of Sandy Peterson called Peterson Games that puts out the games published and designed by Sandy Peterson has been very responsive to fan requests even when they thought they were a little bit off sometimes they go get very very deep into requests that nobody made but they want to do like for example they were never quite satisfied with the sculpt for Azathoth so for the third onslaught they're like let's make him five times bigger and crazy looking sure why not not. This is something we like, so this is a labor of love, and it shows in a lot of ways. But again, nonetheless, it is a solid game. So I'm I'm a big fan of Civil Wars, and uh, I'm always happy to play it. Would you play this week, Mark? Got a chance to try Decrypto. This is by uh, Thomas Dagenet L'Espérance, which is a great name, and it's sort of a it's sort of in the rough wheelhouse of code names in that it is a word association game played in teams. The trick here is that you're trying to clue your teammates without letting your opponents know too much about what's going on, as opposed to code names where you really are kind of sort of working in parallel. There's a little bit of intersection in code names about. You know, we don't think that we should take this word because we think it relates to another clue that they put out. But anyhow, Decrypto is more solidly about that. I wasn't a massive fan of Decrypto for a couple of reasons. One of them is the existence of code names, And another is that it felt very, very procedural to me in an unsatisfying way. It's like, okay, you give your your clues, you guys talk, we try to guess for the clues, we announce what our guesses are, you announce what your guesses are. You announce what your guess is for our clue, and we announce what our results are for that. All of this is is happening in a weird order. Great that I haven't read the rules, and there was some disagreement amongst the people who were playing about how the the game is best to be played. Those were fun to watch, I will grant, but I perhaps if I read the rules and I you know had better internalized the round structure, it would seem less clumsy. But honestly, for a game of that length and that depth. I would much rather be handled in a way that Codenames does it, which is to say an extremely simple and streamlined way. It also encourages less sort of table talk because, again, secrecy is involved than Codenames does. Codenames always involves a lot of shouting and laughing, and I like both of those activities. So if you're a more quiet individual and you don't like to shout, then by all means, Decrypto is apt to be slightly more to your liking in that sense.
0: That's right. If you thought Codenames... Didn't quite last long enough, and you wanted a one hour code names game, then Decrypto is for you. Again, it might have been shorter if we had a better sense of the
1: turn structure and there were fewer rules disagreements, but yeah, it seemed a little too long. And just in every way that it was different from uh, different from code names, I preferred code names, suffice to say. Yeah,
0: like, don't get me wrong, I really liked everything about Decrypto. I liked the interaction, the fact that you have to, like, try to suss out what the other words are. All of that is great, but just code names just does it just better overall, faster, cleaner, more fun. Easier to teach. And then it also has these like weird red screens, you know, like the old school, you know, you put on the red glasses and it decrypts the words and you can't really even see your opponent's words. So it's not really necessary. And I guess it's just to feed into the theme maybe, but it just seemed odd.
1: I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. But you're right.
0: 100% unnecessary. All right. That was Decrypto. Now to talk about Gaslands because we both got to try it for the first time this week. And I think we both love it. I love it. How many times has this type of genre been attempted, right? Everyone loves the Mad Max theme. You know, souping up your cars, putting machine guns on them. Car Wars did at the beginning. There's been tons of other systems out there. And I really think that Gasland has hit the mark on all fronts. You know, nice, basic, streamlined, easy to go through. The flow is real. And you can you know manipulate the cars however you want, your sides, and I really like Gaslands.
1: The elevator pitch for Gaslands really does a very good job of selling the game. This is a tabletop miniatures game where you get to play with Hot Wheels cars. And for many people, that'll be sold. This actually, not in a nostalgic way, this is one of those weird instances where, when I was a kid, many of my toys were Hot Wheels cars. We grew up under the poverty line, and Hot Wheels cars are great As it, as an adult now. I realized they're basically a buck a car. And for a miniatures gaming system, that's perfect. I used to think that Infinity was the way to do miniatures gaming on the cheap, but Gaslands has it beat hands down because all you need for a game of Gaslands is the book itself and a handful of Hot Wheels cars, and you're done. And you can modify the cars if you want to or whatever, but it doesn't require a whole lot of terrain, and probably whatever terrain you have, if you've ever done any miniatures gaming, will be fine. If you haven't done any miniatures gaming at all before, Salt Shakers will be fine. And it's a blast to play. It's uh, It uses maneuver templates, not entirely unlike X-Wing, but there's no simultaneous action selection, so it's less about double-think and more about, well, can I maneuver past these obstacles in this proper way? It's got a great system of manipulating your gears, about the risk of going faster and thereby activating more and covering more ground, but then your cars become more difficult to, to handle, As you say, the theme is really well executed. There's a lot to like about Gaslands, and I think that merely the mention of how it works has has inspired our local group to a certain extent. And I've only played it the two times now, but I've had a great time each time. They've turned out very differently each time. Lots of chaos and lots of interesting moves and lots of hilarious failures as your car tumbles over helplessly and starts taking damage. This was put out by uh, Osprey Publishing, which... Puts out Bolt Action and a number of other relatively mainstream historical tabletop wargames. N- that's kind of a contradiction in terms, you know, mainstream historical tabletop wargaming. But anyway, they also have a a, a bunch of these blue softbound books that they've put out. One of them I'm, I'm curious in tr- uh, trying is called Rogue Stars. It's by uh, Andreas Figlioli who also did um, Song of Blades and Heroes. But anyway... This was actually recommended to us by a listener of ours. And when it was, you know, the elevator pitch worked on me just as well as it's worked on everybody else. When I saw what it was about, I knew I had to order it. So I just went to Amazon and got the. Oh, sorry. We don't want to market Amazon. We, I went to. Uh, uh, Amazonia. So, no, I'll just say I went to some place on the internet that will ship books to you. And we'll let someone guess what that could be. And, you know, you just print out the templates. That I got to work with a glue stick. That was a lot of fun. It's just I've been having a a, a lot of uh, good times with it. It's a very low barrier to entry, both in terms of cost and rules explanation tabletop game, and uh, ga- I'm very much looking forward to seeing what else Gaslands has to offer.
0: I want I don't want to you know this not our this not our feature game, but to go on about it a little bit more. There are three key game mechanisms that i love and they're all intertwined with each other and the ones i want to talk about now are the the hazards tokens so you use these hazard tokens to increase your gear and depending on the template you use you're going to get more hazard tokens And if you get so many you know you could wipe out but the fact that there are six activations which are represented by your gears. So everyone in the first activation, anyone who's in gear one moves and then so on and so forth up to gear six. And in every gear you have a chance to increase your speed to the next gear. So you can stay in, you know, all six rounds as long as you keep going faster and faster. And if you wipe out or have to slow down for any reason, then you're out and everyone else, you know, gets to keep going. And I think that is a fantastic game mechanism.
1: I've been having a blast playing it. I've been having a blast getting more cars. And honestly, at a buck a pop, you could do a lot worse than than yeah. getting a whole bunch yeah, of Yeah, there's little... something
0: about going to the store, you know, reliving your childhood, going about to buy Hot Wheels cards, and we're going to start gluing some weapons on them, and it's going to be a good time.
1: Absolutely. So probably more information on Gaslands to follow as we, as we explore more of what the game has to offer. We played Beowulf the Legend. Beowulf the Legend is probably, in my estimation, one of Reiner Knizia's least appreciated modern designs. And it has been dismissed by many people as just a, a, a luck fest, because there is indeed a lot of luck in Beowulf the Legend, specifically in terms of taking risks, which is pulling blindly off the top of the deck, which could help you stay in a fight, or could knock you out uh, catastrophically. But what I really like about Beowulf, it's more about knowing when you're in a position to risk. If you are against somebody that can afford to fail a risk, then yes, you're at a disadvantage. And if you risk all the time then you're probably going to end up with a very, very bad situation. Uh, unless, of course, you have Herculean luck. But in any game with any amount of luck, if you have Herculean luck, then yes, weird things can happen. At any rate, the, uh, the sort of critical consensus was that, that Beowulf was a third tier at best, Canizia Design, when it came out. But I quite disagree. I've been getting it to the table consistently ever since it was put out in 2005, and I've been having a great time with it. I appear to be more or less alone, though. I haven't yet met anyone else in person whose enthusiasm matches mine. And actually... After after our game
0: walker, I didn't get a chance to pull you. What, what did you think of Beowulf? No, oh, I played it before, and I'm the one that suggested to play it. I really like it. I don't think it's lucky at all. I think it's knowing, seeing, looking ahead, seeing what's coming up, knowing, you know, what battles you're going to fight, right? Am I going to let this one go, take my hits here, but be prepared for the ones that are coming up? I have no problems, and I agree with you. I think it's a fantastic game. Have you ever played Taj Mahal, also by Rainer Knizia? I don't think so
1: so Taj Mahal is widely regarded as one of Canizia's best designs and I'm not in lockstep with the rest of the Reiner Canizia fandom because I don't like Taj Mahal I think it's a little too restrictive I I recognize it as a good game Taj Mahal and Modern Art for me are very good games that I don't want to play and Beowulf to me is very much like Taj Mahal only fun because Taj Mahal is very much about managing a very scarce resource of cards, knowing when to fight and knowing when to get out the trick is though that in Taj Mahal I sometimes find, and this is probably just because I'm not very good at the game, that you end up in pissing contests without even really wanting to be in pissing contests. You didn't even know that that's what was going to happen. In Beowulf, though... You know what's going on. Now, sometimes you're going to make bad decisions, and in fact, in the last game we played, I made a very stupid decision to, you know, bullheadedly headedly pursue, pursue on when I just should have folded, and I probably would have been a lot happier as a result. But in Taj Mahal, sometimes you're like, okay, I'm just going to play this one card and get out, and then suddenly all you're, you're in this attritional war that you never wanted any part of, and there's a no-win situation that you really couldn't have contro- controlled or foreseen, at least in my experience. Beowulf, again, is a little more forgiving, a little bit more open, and so I prefer it in that way. But as you say, it's it's about hand management and looking ahead and knowing when to fight. And those, I think, are interesting trade-offs, and I think Beowulf does it very, very well. So that's Beowulf the Legend, not to be confused with the Beowulf-themed reskin of Kingdoms, also designed by Rainer Knitzi, I put up by Fantasy Flight. It's the movie tie-in version. That one's
0: okay, I guess, but it's definitely no Beowulf the Legend. All right, what I got to say was Marco Polo. Finally got a copy, my hands on a copy, and I thought it was a great game. We just talked about Food Chain Magnet last week and how it's sort of, you know, front end heavy and how the decisions are huge at the beginning. Marco Polo does it a little bit differently where you have many paths that you can take and the reward for getting there first is very minor, but your front end things are the special powers that everyone gets at the beginning. Huge abilities that are going to overpower the whole game, but not unbalanced because everyone has one and i think they're fairly even more plays will will decide but i haven't heard anything you know online about them you know one being better than the rest but overall i think it was a great game it's a dice manipulation game you're going to be rolling dice using them for actions using you know tokens to change the dice get more dice moving around putting huts out i think it's a great game and i'm looking forward to playing it again
1: me too. I thought it was very good. I would I would like it a, a better if it gets down to about 75 to 90 minutes, but I think with, with repeated exposure it can get there. Our game took about two hours, which I think is a touch too long for uh, a game of its depth of decision making. You're right, there are some crucial decisions to be made at the outset, like where you're going to go, and... You end up, that ends up being a key decision about what kind of engine you're gonna build. It does some interesting things with dice. Sometimes you want low results, sometimes you want high results, depending on where you're going. And so you can look at the dice that you've rolled at the start of the round and try to maximize your play based on what you got. But just to give an indication of how bonkers the special powers are, because they are really quite strong. One of the special powers you might acquire, everybody gets one at the start of the game, one of them is you don't care what numbers you roll. You don't roll dice. You just stipulate what number you want them to be, wherever you go. So obviously, even if you've never played the game, that intuitively makes sense about how strong that is, because everyone else is rolling, and there are going to be some serious impacts based on whatever you roll. But... It seems to all work i mean it's not it's not like cosmic encounter where it's it's barely controlled chaos instead it's a relatively tight system where basically where the way one of our our friends described it it's like each power gets to ignore one of the game constraints. There's just a mechanism of the game that limits what you can do, and every power more or less allows you to ignore it entirely. And I think that was reasonably apt, especially in, in his case. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. I agree with you that, that we don't have enough data to decide whether or not something's overpowered, but it's definitely fun to maximize the crazy special power you had.
0: Yeah, now, now that, and after looking at it, you definitely have to uh, look at the board before you start, because the whole board is randomized pretty well, and it is fairly key, you can't just sort of, it's not like other games where you progress as you go further, you know, you progress through the game, this you sort of really have to plan your route out, you can't just say, well that first base looks good and just go from there, you sort of have to, you know, gauge your whole game and then go from there, and that would be the mistake that I made. Just one? Just one mistake? One of the mistakes that I made. Sure, fair enough.
1: (laughs) Final game I'd like to talk about is a game I've been wanting to try for a while. It's called
0: Dungeon Degenerate's
1: Hand of Doom. This is put out by Goblin Co. this year, and Goblin Co. is a company that seems to exist exclusively to put out Dungeon Degenerate stuff. I was drawn to it because it has a number of very, very ardent adherents, and it also has a very consistent and very striking art direction. And... As a result, partially because of that and partially because of the uh, thematic decisions, it avoids a lot of your standard adventure tropes. I've commented before specifically about a game called Assault on Doomrock that I, I kind of enjoy it when fantasy tropes are inverted and instead of heroes, you're basically desperate people scrabbling around in the mud who are more or less doomed. And Dungeons & Degenerates definitely leads with that. The problem is... While it is very interesting aesthetically, while it does also, it's worth noting, relatively interesting things with a branching campaign that seems far more open than lots of other branching campaigns, possibly more on that later, in that you have, you know, genuine choice. Like, the first scenario involves you getting sprung out of jail by a guard who wants you to go get something, and among your various options are, once you get that thing, you can give it to whoever you want. You can deliver it back to where he told you to, you can deliver it somewhere else, and all of these lead to different scenarios. And so that was really, really neat. But, The fundamental gameplay just doesn't cut it for me. Basically, it's a standard sort of point-to-point. You walk somewhere, you pull a card, and it tells you if enemies spawn. And if the enemies spawn, you roll dice to defeat them. That's that's more or less it. I'm being somewhat unkind deliberately just for the sake of giving an, an overall picture. But there wasn't anything really novel or interesting in terms of the gameplay elements to grab me, which is a bit of a shame. I still enjoyed it. Because of the world, because of the way it was rendered. But it's really when there's a well-rendered world with... Gameplay that I find engaging, that a game really uh, sings for me, like for example, Assault on Doomrock, which is a very different kind of game, but it has some of the same kind of trope inversions, and it's also a fantasy adventure game. You know, Assault on Doomrock has very, very compelling and solid combat mechanisms, whereas Dungeon Degenerates you basically are rolling a whole bunch of 2d6 for attribute checks, which doesn't really do anything for me anymore. I'm going to take a look at some of the later scenarios, see if any of them have a little bit more in terms of you know character growth or or, or any sort of flips on the system. But as it was, I I think it's a very, very interesting artifact, just not one I'm
0: particularly interested to play anymore, and that was Dungeon Degenerate's Hand of Doom. So on to news and why it does not matter. I have actual no board game news. My only news is swag news, and after this episode, we will be on to our summer schedule. At the moment, what we're planning on doing for our summer schedule for the time being, is one week
1: on, one week off. So, in other words, we are not going to be having an episode next week, but we will the week after. Thanks to the miracle of technology, you'll be notified whenever there are new episodes anyway. But basically, I think we can sum, our th- sum up our thinking in the following way. We're going to take all your Patreon money, and we are going to abscod to the Caribbean. You'll never hear from us again, and we'll just be in my ties for life from all the uh, the money you've sent us.
0: My ties.
1: I do have one bit of news, though, that I'd like to talk about, and... Personally, I do think that it does matter. The A number of posts have shown up on Reddit detailing basically a whole bunch of things that I already knew. Namely, that it is really, really awful being a woman in the hobby games market whether you're a war gamer whether you're a minis gamer whether you're a euro gamer or an ameritrash or whatever it kind of sucks for a lot of reasons and basically these are stories that are version versions of that i've heard all all manner of times before whether it's the employee who assumes you don't know what you're talking about the fellow gamer who assumes you don't know what you're talking about or just generally men that assume you don't know what you're talking about actual Sexual harassment, actual sexual assault where people are cornered and prevented to leave or repeated sexual overtures that are unwelcome and visibly so, but keep continuing. There were claims of harassment at Origins this year. I don't know enough about the details. I'd rather not get into it. But a number of people have just been posting on Reddit and elsewhere I'm a woman in the gaming industry. This is what I've had to put up with over the years. And just, again, nothing that I didn't know before and that nothing that I haven't heard from my friends and family for years and nothing that I haven't seen with my own two eyes happen. But all that I want to say is this, because I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this and as you know, your standard middle-class white cis male, I'm certainly not in a position to be any kind of leader or exemplar in this. But this is all that I have to say because some of the reactions from people like me or at least in some of the same groups that, that, that I'm in, to some of these tales really frustrated me because they tended to take the version of, look, there's a burden of proof, you can't go around just hurling accusations around here, which is nonsense because if somebody shows up on a board game forum saying, I went to a con and all my games got stolen, nobody shows up and said, oh, there's a burden of proof, you can't go just go around saying using a word like stealing, that's nonsense, we have to start using the same kind of standards. But also just sort of, oh, you know, you're being oversensitive, Or you're taking things out of context, or I know this guy, he must have meant it nicely, whatever. Here's here's all that I have to say in terms of how to react to things like this, even if it's against your friend, even if it's something like that. What we have in these instances, what we have when people come forward to share these narratives, and it's not easy because they know they're going to be subjected to a whole bunch of nonsense and crap in response, is what they're doing is they're explaining how the environment has made them feel. What they're explaining is is that they they feel unwelcome and that they've been made to feel unwelcome in a variety of ways. Even if you think that some of these claims might be even embellished, perhaps even deliberately, like even assume the worst-case scenario, that that these are people exaggerating instances, even though I don't think that's the case, I think the first question shouldn't be, how can I undermine this person's account, but rather... What is it that we can do to make our environment more welcoming for everybody? Because at the end of the day, whether you want to get political about it or whether you don't want to get political about it, we need to be a little bit better at making environments where everyone feels like they can have a good time. Because at the end of the day, that's what gamers, hopefully, we should aspire to. And I think that the natural defensive reaction that I definitely empathize with. I'm a, I'm one of the most defensive people I know. Defensiveness doesn't get us anywhere because when people come to share their stories, they're not here to incriminate anyone. What they're, what, what, often they're trying to do is help improve the environment, right? So if somebody comes up and says, you know, I want to accuse a specific person of a specific thing, I think we, don't, we should all shun them or send them to jail. Absolutely. Start talking about burdens of proof. Start talking about, you know, I know this guy, whatever. But if somebody shows up and says, here are things that have happened to me and here's how I feel in gaming environments, it's not about you. It really isn't. It's about what you do to make other people feel welcome or what you do to make other people feel unwelcome or unsafe or harassed or objectified. And this is something that I say not because I think I'm very good at keeping this in mind, but just also so as to remind me of what's happening. So as I read more and more of these narratives that come up, I'm heartened by the fact that not all the reaction is bad. I'm heartened by the fact that some of these people feel safe being able to relate these stories, even if it's anonymously. I see it on Twitter. I see it on Reddit. I see it on Facebook. And I would just like to encourage all the Swag listeners, whether it's in response to to stories like this or just in general, this is something that both Walker and I have talked about repeatedly. Try to think about ways to make sure that your environment is welcoming, open, and safe for everyone involved. It's not about you. It's not about your reputation. It's about whether or not you're able to make the people that you're spending social time with feel like human beings rather than victims or objects of harassment or assault. And that's all I have to say on the topic. Well said. Thank you, Walker. I'll
0: try not to get on the soapbox too often. The reason I, I do this, the reason anyone do this, is to introduce people to games, to have to show how interesting this hobby is, and how great this hobby is, and how welcoming it is to everyone, and just try to make it that way. Also well said. So let's move on to our feature game. Our feature game this week is SEAL Team Flicks by Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas. Before we start the review, full disclosure, the copy of Seal Team Fix we played was a review copy sent to us by WizKids. So this is a co-op dexterity game, which is not a
1: huge category. I feel that dexterity games have been ha- had a couple of very good years recently, and co-op games have been just dominating the market in large part. You look at every possible Kickstarter and everyone wants a solo or co-op variant for everything, whether it belongs there or not. But the the union of the two is not as common as you might think, for perhaps obvious reasons. Usually in flicking games, it's a competitive experience where you're trying to flick into somebody or flick better than somebody else. And solo and co-op games need some sort of automation. And it's usually you can't automate flicking as a general rule. So there are only three prominent examples of co-op games that I can think of or that I've played. One of them being SEAL Team Flicks. One of them being an old HABA game called Castle Knights, which was a fascinating affair whereby you had this bizarre implement. that was kind of like an elastic band connected to four strings. And so you had four people using, trying to manipulate this band so you could pick up blocks and build a tower under a time limit. It was fun. It was kind of neat. It was, it, it was, it was really cool. I enjoyed it. I like a lot of HABA games. We've talked in glowing terms about Rhino Hero Super Battle, which was another HABA game. And the other co-op dexterity game, which is much more recent, is Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. And it did a brilliant job, we've talked about this before, of automating the zombies, because what you do is you take some plastic zombies, you dump them in a tower, and then they tumble out in a quasi-ish random way, and if the zombies knock anybody over, they start losing life. And so that was really neat. The way that SEAL Team Flicks does it is yet a, a third way, in that there are antagonists, but they don't work quite the same way as Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. So I just wanted to, 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 to sort of situate what a co optics already game might look
0: like. Walker, why don't you walk through a little bit what we do in SEAL Team Flicks? Well, there's over 18 missions, so essentially what you're doing is you get your team together, you get to pick out weapons and equipment, depending on what level you are, because there's an interesting leveling system. Then you, you know, deploy your guys at the starting point, and you populate the map that's already set up with walls and and, uh, boxes and crates and stuff in the way, and then you populate it with enemies, which are, there three different kinds. There's patrols, there's sentries, and there's masterminds. There could be civilians as well. And then you uh, start taking turns, and you move through the level, you know, eliminating the the enemies, showing how great you are, shooting discs, or how terrible you are. There's also how great you
1: are if you're Walker, and how terrible you are if you're Mark. That's <laughs> that's that's more or less how it works. It should be on the box. I, I I didn't say that. I was
0: I was you know in general. You're too humble. In. And then there's these really interesting, well, more on all this later, but there's really interesting little mini-games that you get to play on the side. And then depending on how well you flicked, either your team has been dispatched or you have, have achieved a victory. And that is SEAL Team Flicks. I
1: would like to start with a topic that we're going to come back to later, and that is the physical production of the game. Because in terms of the actual physical components... Steel Team Flicks is one of the best engineered games that I've seen in a very long time. And I mention this in in particular because when you're making dexterity games, minor problems can really hobble the experience. One game in particular that it wasn't co-op, but it was similarly a marriage of somewhat more strategic elements and dexterity elements is, is Ascending Empires. And in Ascending Empires, you moved your starships by flicking them. Aside from that, it was just a very, very light 4X game. But... The board was this puzzle board, and the seams were very, very pronounced. And so it was very often difficult to flick across the seams of the joins of the puzzle board. And as a result, it was a serious, serious damper on the playing of the game. I say this in contrast to SEAL Team Flicks, where the boards are, consist of these single, relatively large tiles that are uh, roughly the size of half of a large game board, basically, that have these walls that you slot into uh, pre-designated holes. And we've all been punching games, if if you're hardcore hobbyists, you know of games where it was difficult to punch things out, or things didn't fit quite well, the printing was a little bit offset, and so it didn't look quite right. I have to say that the assembly of the doors in the actual boards is borderline flawless it really really is a triumph and it needed to be because these walls are physical obstacles you have these lovely 3d boards then with these physical obstacles that allow you to do bank shots and all these other things with respect to the the flicking discs and if there had been some mistakes if too many boards were loose i had to glue one board in in our copy one board uh, one sorry one wall in out of i think well over 100 walls and that is a triumph. They stay in. They stay assembled. There's room in the box for them assembled. So set up is a breeze. You don't have to worry about any of that. I, I just have to give hats off for WizKids. In terms of the physical assembly of the game, it's wonderful.
0: And they're hugely thematic, right? You have, like, an airport board that has the plane that you have to storm. You have the the subway station, you know, the two subway cars side I love side. that map. That map yeah. is so cool. And then you have the hotel where, you know, you bust in through the, you know, the lobby and you try to get to the back rooms. There's, what, uh six maps six different maps can't name them all but they're all very thematic all very interesting all hold their own little you know obstacles or hindrances that you have to figure out very very awesome the discs Great. The standees we'll get back to, but overall I think the production is great on this game.
1: Well, I wouldn't go that far. I was I was being very, very specific about the physical production of the game. We'll talk a little bit more about other issues because uh, I, I would like to just emphasize the element about the boards because I've been in discussion with the uh, designers of the game, Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas, and what they said, they said this also in the very excellent designer diary that we flagged last week. ...on Board Game Geek. There was a choice uh, for a while. Originally, when prototyped, the game was played with a type of component called a rolly pawn, which I've seen in Mechanis Burgo and a couple of other games. Uh, it's R-O-L-Y. If you just want to look it up on the internet to see a picture, then by all means do that. And there were also there was some possibility of, of making it with minis, and basically the design decision came down to, look... If we produce it with six boards and minis, we're talking about a game with an MSRP of 80 bucks, and WizKids didn't want to do that, which is which is legit. That's a reasonably expensive game, although not necessarily by the standards of, you know, Simon Monsters, but that's not why they wanted to pitch it. So they basically had a choice. Either three boards with some kind of mini, or six boards and standees. And I think they made the right call 1,000%. Apparently, for Pete Ruth remarks, that he didn't think that that was a difficult decision at all, and I'm with him entirely, because those boards are great, and it offers a tremendous variety of tactics experiences because of the way the boards are laid out they're not just pretty and they're not just functional but they're all just really different in terms of the combat situations that they engender and so it really is a a marvel of engineering in that sense agreed so let's talk about perhaps some of the less good elements of the production because uh, for one thing the boards although very pretty they sent the wrong version to the printers apparently and so the setup information for sentries is absent Now I didn't feel this was a tremendous problem initially because if you squint very carefully at the setup diagrams in the scenario book you can see where the sentry setup is supposed to be but sometimes it's obscured and sometimes it's not very clear Uh, so that's a problem. It's also the case that there have been at least a couple of errors in the scenarios that I've spotted. Again, after talking with the designers it's also the case that the assembly instructions are also extremely good, but there are a number of errors there, and I actually trimmed down some walls to make them fit because I thought I was trying to follow the, the instructions, but no, the instructions were just wrong, and it swapped out some of the door tabs, uh, the the wall tabs, rather, and so had that, had I been assembling it properly, I wouldn't have needed to cut them down, and so there's a little bit of gap between a couple of my walls. It's fine, but again, you know, errors here and there. WizKids has released on BoardGameGeek, on erratum for the century setup instructions, but they have not yet released a corrected version of the assembly book. I sincerely hope that when this before this game hits general distribution, that they have a correct version of that, because again, it's about assembling the boards. But uh, I, I I hate to, to to rag on a printing project this complicated when they got the fundamentals right. The physical design is so good, but the the errors do provide a little bit of a sore spot.
0: All right, so let's talk about a little bit how the game works because I didn't read the rules previously and when I found out that you actually count spaces out when you movement I thought it was you know it sort of breaks the trend of other dexterity flicking games that are out there because usually you flick to move and then flick to shoot so you actually have a movement and you move your little squares and then it's only when you shoot do you actually start the flicking and the way they integrated the weapons and the bullets—it's—it's it's a really interesting because you can you know either fire on full auto or single shot, and that will change you know the size of disc you're gonna shoot and how many discs you get to shoot, and uh, the way they laid out the board—you can be standing around a corner and you know you'll get cover. You can see around corners. They have like cool little iconography on the board that will show you you know what you you know which corners give you cover and which doors give you cover, and I thought that part of it was really cool.
1: And it also. I think offers a great balance between momentum and shooting because very often in co-op games like this and this is true whether it's something unique like Team Flick, something very derivative like uh, Descent or what have you in the scenario design there's, sometimes you fail in that tricky balance between momentum and shooting in Descent, many, many scenarios are either just a straightforward siege where you just hole up and kill everything, or they turn out to these fundamental races where it's almost always a mistake to attack. And this has been true of lots of different games that I've played. But Seal Team Flicks, I've been very impressed with the scenario design thus far. In most instances, there's this great balance of sometimes you need to stop and kill everything, and sometimes you just need to run around and sneak. Because in addition to uh, the movement mechanics working the way they do, it really feeds into this notion that stealth really matters. You need to be very careful about who sees you and when. And some of my favorite moments in SEAL Team Flicks are precisely when you've created a diversion, either intentionally or accidentally, and then you just start sneaking around, and then you either ambush them from behind or you go and pursue the objectives while all the enemies are going to investigate the massive noise that you made a few turns ago. Uh, And I'm hard-pressed to think of an instance where a game has done stealth
0: nearly as well as SEAL Team Flicks. Yeah, they did it using these sound tokens, much like... uh... Zombicide. All weapons make a certain amount of noise, so you start pitching these sound tokens in a room, and of course that's going to alert everyone nearby, so everyone's going to start moving towards the sound, and they degrade every turn. But, like like you said, you can create this huge amount of noise, so it takes a while for it to degrade, and then all the enemies, you know, funnel towards the corner while you sneak around the side. Kill the objectives. Loved it. Let's talk about the sideboards, or do you have something else you want to talk about? Let's talk about the sideboards. Sideboards. There are three of them. One of them is to Unlock electronically locked doors, so you just roll some dice, you put some tokens out on those numbers that you've rolled, and then you have have a certain number of discs you can flick to knock those numbers off, or you have to defuse a bomb. Same sort of thing when you flip over the bomb token it'll tell you it'll be a big picture of a bomb with different colored tokens and it'll tell you which ones to put things on and depending what level you're doing, you flip over the sand timer, which is a death like fast sand timer
1: yes, they included in this in seal Team Flex they included a sand timer exclusively for this one mini game you
0: perform while diffusing a bomb, so you have to quickly you know flick these discs in real time knocking off all the different discs on the parts of the bomb. And then there's the, the most interesting one, in my opinion, is the sniper sideboard. How can you find it so interesting, given that you always fail at it? I know. Well, that's why I just...
1: Make oh, no mistake, just, just for context of listeners, Michael Walker is deadly with a sniper rifle in SEAL Team Flicks when he's flicking it in the normal map board. Whenever he goes to the sideboard, which I, and I can sometimes see him looking off, he gives a little side eye thinking, oh, maybe I should... No, the answer is no. <laughs> don't use the sideboard. You will fail and kill
0: us all. So, in SEAL Team Flicks, (laughs) there's all sorts of these crates and stuff that are over the board, but they don't block line of sight. You can see over them, but they provide cover for the enemy because you can't flick around them or, you know, you can try to bank around them. But if you have a sniper rifle, and as long as you have line of sight, you can use this sideboard and it's... All it is is flicking it and trying. it has a picture of the enemy with a crosshair on him and you just have to put it over these little colored dots. And if you manage to do that with one shot, then you've killed the enemy instead of taking the actual manual shot on the board.
1: So let's talk about line of sight. Walker just winced, and I think that's appropriate. I've commented before in context of in context of games like Assault on Doomrock or a lot of other games that I'd really appreciate that many, if not most, modern games have recognized that line of sight is a pain, and if you can get rid of it. So much the better. If you can find a way to make sure that line of sight is not an issue, you should do that. There's a lot of calculating line of sight in SEAL Team Flicks. It is probably my least favorite element of the game, and it's something you have to do all the time. Now, you don't have to worry about what your your own SEAL Team members can see, because the game is just, well, you're shooting by flicking, so whatever you hit, you hit, more or less. There's very, very little restriction on that. So if you want to shoot at somebody you can't see, by all means, bank it off the wall and good luck. And if it hits it, he's dead. That's great. That's wonderful. But all the enemies rely on line of sight rules. And the line of sight rules are relatively straightforward, but we're talking about a grid with lots of spaces. And the more spaces there are and the longer the distances are, the more disagreement you're going to have, the more fuzzy it's going to be about whether whether somebody can see somebody else. And what's weird is that the rules, and I'll be talking more about the rules in a moment, although very detailed and sometimes explain the same thing several times over, sometimes not in the same terms, but sometimes over, the rules devote precisely one sentence to line of sight. No examples, no helpful walkthrough, no clarifications about things like that. It's just one sentence about how line of sight is calculated, a list of things that block line of sight, and a list of things that don't. And that's kind of okay, but there have been a number of confusing things. And I find it one of the less enjoyable aspects of just a, of determining how the enemies are going to move
0: it's like one of those things, like you said, with... Doomrock. Perfect line of sight. Tonghauser. Have you ever played Tong- Tonghauser? I have. Fantastic line of sight rules. Guards of Atlantis. No line of sight no rules. No line yet. of sight. Yeah. So this... Is, and and I don't... It's fantasy Flight runs into the same problem with both... There's like Descent and... Yep. Imperial, Imperial Assault. Imperial Assault. You know, these... These, you know, fiddly, over published line of sight rules. Like, can we just... I know sometimes it, it, it may... You may feel that it puts you in the game more or gives you more feeling that you're there but it really doesn't it just pulls you out of the game and it'll, sometimes you do need it I don't know what the answer is but just like this game leads to fiddly bits and pulls you out of the game experience
1: I have no idea how I would redesign seal team flicks without line of sight because it's so integral to how the AI works and, and make no mistake the AI has lots of really clever bits because the AI has to pull double duty it needs to worry about how they fight and how they move and In in terms of both of that, how to deal with stealth, how to deal with commandos that they, well, not commandos, SEAL team members where they don't know where they are, but they know that there's some noise somewhere, you know, their buddy didn't drop dead spontaneously, of a brain hemorrhage, all of that works great, and when it comes time to determining where enemies move, it's incredibly straightforward. It's very smooth. There's never a question of whether to take this path or this path. No, no, no. It's all clear. It's all printed out. And that is a triumph. The problem is when you start worrying about your own turn, saying, wait, if I move here, how many people see me? And the answer could be I don't know, a couple guys, all of them, none of them, Mm, let's take a look again, and so, just to put it in simple terms, we've been playing games like this collectively between the two of us for decades and decades, at least 40 years, if not 50 or 60, and yet, still while we're playing, we have to hold up a straight edge and say, I I don't know, does that, uh, maybe, and that's uh, a
0: little unfortunate. Yep, for sure, and, but make no mistake, we've talked about that this is a co-op flicking game, and there's none, hardly Any like it anywhere, and in order to get that in a game like this, where you get to play against the game, a flicking game, I can see why there's going to be issues there.
1: Yes, which I think is a good way to segue into my next complaint, and I don't know if this is just me. To be entirely fair, Walker might not be able to comment too too much on this because again, I'm I'm, I was sort of the uh, the the game explainer here. Siltium Flicks has a lot of really clever bits. And a lot of great ways of streamlining lots of complicated things. Like I said, enemy movement, enemy AI. But I had a devil of a time getting this game right. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the designer playthrough online has a number of rules rules errors. Not to harp on him. Mr. Thomas is a great guy and he's been very, very helpful. Both Mark Thomas and Pete Ruth have been very, very helpful with, with us personally. But... When you're talking about a situation where I've played thousands of different games, and this is a game that is relatively straightforward, I had to really work at internalizing how all of it worked. Now, some of it was just because things were kind of—some of it was because things were clever. That's okay. I will forgive lots of of comprehension errors because a game is being clever, and I'm expecting it to be stupid. Not that I expected Seal Team Flicks to be stupid. Some of the problem was also subtle, very, very subtle, and not properly emphasized differences in how the different enemies worked. Sentries behave a little bit differently from patrols, and they both work a little tiny bit differently from masterminds. And that, you know, again, that a few more examples could have been helpful just spelling out the specific differences. And some of it was just uh, all of these things interacting with typos, which, again, is another problem of, of the development of the game. So I will say... It took me a while and far longer than many other games or even many more complicated games for me to get to a point where I'm reasonably confident that I'm playing correctly and that was, I found that de- deeply unfortunate. Now, now that I'm here, now that I've gotten past all that, it's just gravy. I'm just able to appreciate how smooth and, and, and pleasant everything works. I have an absolute blast. Again, I'm not 100% sure why all this
0: happened, but there are some niggling rules issues that take a while to internalize. I think this is a good point to stick in this last bad point that I have. I'm wondering if this game is just hovering too much in the middle, where it has this huge rulebook. It gives you this impression of being this overly complicated game when it just isn't, because the rulebook is a little bit too wordy in some points, like you said.
1: You're absolutely right that I think that a game like this is necessarily going to be a very niche product. And in point of fact... Uh, both designers have been very clear, both in public and in private, that they just wanted to design a game for them. That this was this was what they wanted to do, and indeed. Games with dexterity elements tend to be a niche and games with dexterity elements with strategic elements on top of that or tactical elements on top of that we're talking about a very 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 niche game now it happens to be a niche that both you and I are very much happy to occupy we we love tactical games like this and we love dexterity games so in to a certain extent we are very much in the same boat that the designers were absent our, our concerns about line of sight and other things like that but You mentioned the issue that it's impossible to remain perfectly hidden. And to a certain extent, that's fine. I mean, obviously, it's the case that if you could remain perfectly hidden, then the game would be too easy. But eventually, you're going to have to expose yourself to enemy fire. Maybe it's possible if you're a super genius and you can hit every single shot with your flick that you'll never be exposed to enemy fire. But broadly speaking, you will get exposed to enemy fire. And the way that's resolved is by rolling a six-sided die. Because, you know, the enemies aren't going to flick at you because that wouldn't really work. So the AI works by by rolling a die. And if you you consistently roll badly, you're going to get shot to ribbons. And there's no two ways about it. I haven't encountered too many freakish instances like this. But this is a game where you minimize the fire that is coming into you. But at the end of the day, you could get shot in the face. And to a certain extent, that's perfectly thematic. But... Some people aren't necessarily going to help uh, like that balance. If you're too conservative in this game, and this I find actually true of of stealth games in general, whether they're video games or board games. If you're too conservative, if you're never willing to subject yourself to the little risk to either dash for the next room of cover or expose yourself for a good shot, then you're just not going to get anywhere. You have to suck it up and be willing to to throw that die of, of fire in your face. Yeah, there's
0: definitely a risk reward element to this game because they get to react after every action you do, regardless if it's a free action or a real action. So as soon as you finish a move within line of sight of an enemy, guess what? Anyone, Everyone in line of sight is opening fire. So you just have to decide whether, once you put yourself in harm's way, how many of them are you going to be able to take out, and adds to the stress of your shot, which is makes the game that much better.
1: It also helps with the teamwork. Because this is a game that bills itself as as being soloable, and to a certain extent that's true, and there are rules for playing as a single seal, I would not recommend it. Playing solo in SEAL Team Flicks is fine, but I would recommend you play with at least two seals. Because the teamwork element is great. Because if your seals are 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 both holed up in the same room, well, there's not a whole lot you can do. But very often in the scenarios that we play, this was especially true of the airport scenario, for example, we can say, okay, look. If I step out, one guy's going to fire at me. But if you step out, three guys are going to fire at you. So why don't I activate first and try to take them all out? And then sometimes that happens, sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. And then you have to reevaluate.
0: You have to constantly reevaluate how it's, much fire am I willing to take. And sometimes you, you know, kick open the door and spray about 100 bullets into the same wall. That might happen too. Yeah, that's known as the, uh, the, the Mark
1: Bigney tactical paradigm. It's, uh, it's called <laughs> containment fire. What you do is you put bullets in a halo pattern around the enemy, immobilizing them. It's very effective.
0: And entertaining to watch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I have calls coming in from the Spetsnaz. They're going to license this. I'm going to be a, a renowned tactical coordinator. It's going to be great. So at the end of the day, what I can say about SEAL Team Flix is as follows. Dealing with the errata is unfortunate. Dealing with some of the rules issues was regrettable. And dealing with line of sight is consistently obnoxious but I have a blast playing SEAL Team Flicks. The marriage of strategic and tactical decision-making about kitting out your soldiers, about moving in the right place, setting yourself up with the right cover, coupled with the joy of flicking, as you said, varying caliber of discs. I mean, the level of detail in, in some ways in SEAL Team Flicks is astonishing because you get to decide what caliber of bullet you want to fire based on the firearm you're using. And then you, when you start adding on top of this the joy of the sideboards, the... It's worth noting, terrible, terrible puns that are throughout the game. SEAL Team Flix is a joy. It's clearly a labor of love. It's a shame that some of the production elements didn't stand up, but the important production elements, the one that really matter, those brilliant, beautiful, interestingly varied boards and and the walls, it's great. And one thing I'd like to note, SEAL Team Flix is shockingly quick. It takes about five minutes to set up, despite the fact that it's a very component-heavy game. The game itself is going to last about an hour, win, lose, or draw, and that's marvelous. A lot of these other sort of uh, flicky games with, with more strategic elements, or even just some of the simple flicky games, you know, you're looking at a solid two hours, especially when you start looking at setup and things. Catacombs probably pushes closer to three But SEAL Team Flicks gets that all done, all of this madness and beauty in a very, very, very compelling package in a very short time frame. And I'm very much looking forward to it regularly hitting the table for those select group of madmen that really want flicking combined with strategic decision making.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with everything you said. If you feel like you want any sort of dexterity game, this is definitely one to try out. You need to like flicking games. If you don't like flicking games, then this will be a pass for sure.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's right there in the title. It really is. Minor note also with respect to what I was talking about before editorially, the designers, I've said this before when we were talking about the designer diary, both designers had a very strong emphasis in a sort of very apolitical, pragmatic methods of inclusion. There are... The SEALs are half men and half women, even though there's no... The the, uh, the current Navy SEALs don't accept women. They said, ah, screw it. We want our daughters to be able to play this game and identify themselves in the characters. The enemies are about half men and half women. I just really appreciate that. It was it was a nice little touch, and I'm glad they went to the effort. Well,
0: that's, that's what blew my mind. You said people were sending a message saying oh my god i can't believe you put women and this is a flicking game i know i know killing people you're killing people well,
1: actually actually you know there are no women seals so really i can't get involved in the theme of this game because ladies can't be seals and ladies aren't
0: i know oh, the game's no good thematically your, no your flicking discs i know i know to kill other human beings <laughs> and and their worry is the <laughs> fact that one of the SEAL team members is a woman. This is this is what they're worried about. Anyway, moving on. I am looking forward to playing it again. That is SEAL Team Flicks. And now on to the topic of the week. Is when and why to get rid of a game? And how and where do you get rid of it? Fire. Fire. Burn it all. Yeah.
1: As I said, when I was moving, I definitely felt the strong urge to burn all my earthly possessions.
0: Well, let's just cover right off this top how we do it personally. Sure. I almost 90% of the time just give away my games. Yeah. I've I done pretty well just two large purges. About several years ago, I did a large Board Game Geek auction for about 20 games. How did that go? I've never done a Board Game Geek auction. I've sometimes considered it. I remember going quite well. You know, the same person locally, not overly locally, but, you know, uh, a couple hours away. Bought the majority of them, and I met him up in, you know up in Toronto at a convention. And so I got to shave on shipping and the rest got shipped out and it was overall a decent experience. I have
1: to say that one of the barriers to my doing that, because as I say, I've considered strongly that kind of thing because I've got a a trade list of of a couple hundred titles. Now, some of those titles I wouldn't sell. They're there just to see if I can get something uh, truly... Uh, Truly good in in value because I've been shocked at some of the trade offers I've gotten. It's good to have a large trade list just to be able to get some churn. I'll talk a little bit more about trading later. But when I was back in the United States, when the United States Postal Service is very, very good, very speedy and very cheap. I was more inclined to possibly do something like that but the Canada Post for good reasons. Canada is a much more difficult country to ship to ship around in than the United States. We are larger and we have fewer people and we have this big stupid Canadian shield right in the middle that nobody can build
0: on. But anyway, that's a separate issue. It just the- It's skidoo's, man. It's so you know how long it takes to ship things by skidoo? Well, especially you, you guys have it easy over there. Especially when you have
1: caribou and then when your caribou gets tired, Carib- yeah. it's just it's just a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, so
0: in-person sales are definitely the way to go, but to a certain extent... I I don't mean to interrupt. Because, you know, I feel bad for these postal workers, right? And then you come into a town, every igloo looks the same. (laughs) That's just a stereotype. My igloo was
1: very nicely decorated. (laughs) I had a two-story igloo. Really? It really stood out. Oh, okay, yeah. It fell down a lot. It's very. It's a lot easier if you go to conventions, which, as I've said before, I don't do. I went when I went to Gen Con, I was involved in a math trade, and math trades are great. I don't know. Have you ever been involved in math? I trade? have
0: not done a math
1: trade. Okay, well, let's talk about regular trading in general because that's usually my bag. That's 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 how I, I've done uh, a few hundred trades. I think about four hundred trades on on BoardGameGeek. And again, a lot of those were back where in the US, where the only transactional cost to doing a trade, aside from the game itself, was you know twelve bucks flat rate priority shipping. It would ship from Massachusetts to Florida in two business days. You know, send it on a Thursday, they get it on a Saturday, which, you know, again to my Canadian mind is 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 amazing. Trading is has gotten me some tremendous deals because the great thing about commerce is, and don't let me bang the the, the capitalism from too hard, but just because I don't want it and I have a certain conception of what it's worth, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to occur with everyone else's value of what it's worth. And sometimes that just leads, and I've, I've been on the receiving end of that too. I have quote-unquote overpaid for things that I really wanted, and both parties walk away happy. But one-for-one one game trades now, it's just it's just a little too expensive. The transactional costs, when you factor in the game, you're losing, and you know, 20, 30 bucks sometimes for shipping, even for a a relatively small thing, it's just not worth it much anymore. So I, I, I don't get trades like that much more. And that's not, it's also not a way to call your collection. Trading is not a great way to narrow down a collection if you're worried about size. And that doesn't help you decide what to keep and what not to keep. And like you, I tend to just give away games very frequently. And this is not because I'm super generous. It's because, again, I can't be bothered to sell the damn things. If I play a game after the session, if I didn't particularly enjoy it, and I happen to know it's not really worth much on the secondary market, and someone says, oh, I really enjoyed it, it's like, go, take it.
0: Good. Yes. Exactly, because essentially what it does is it stays on the shelf, doesn't get played, it, it falls out of rotation, like out of everyone's rotation, and then it's a wasted, right? So if you see someone that's enjoying it and you know you're not going to, why go through the trouble of doing anything else? Just let let it get played.
1: Yeah, and I'm very fortunate now, uh, I was I was in this position as well in Cambridge, but I'm, I'm very fortunate now in, in, in the current position where if somebody has a game that they don't particularly like, but I know well, i like it, at least they're going to keep it, and so I def- definitely have access to it. Now, I haven't always been very good at accepting the equivalency of someone else owning a copy to my owning a copy. Uh, a classic example of this for me is Food Chain Magnate. I'm now on my third copy of Food Chain Magnate because I got outrageous trade offers for them, uh, but then I always wanted to get the game back. Now, I know you've got a copy. I know some of our other friends have had copies, but I want my own copy because I'm a petty, petty, superficial, materialistic individual, which is not necessarily healthy uh, financially or psychologically or morally, but uh, it is what it is.
0: All right, some other ways. There's Facebook has tons of groups, local groups that you can do trades with, you know, sell games on. There's uh, lots of, there's garage sale sites. Even locally. Uh, I don't know how far Kijiji goes, but I think Kijiji goes through the states. Do but they I,
1: sell board games there?
0: Yeah, there's quite a few. You really? Can, yeah, you post I had no on, idea. Yeah, you search for your local area, you can sell your games that, or even pick up games that way. I had no earthly idea. That's marvelous. And yeah, like I said, and then but then you get, like you said, the shipping is getting out of control, and then you have the risk of, you know, the game just not showing up and you losing your game. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, not to me personally, but uh I've read many online like the Facebook book the Facebook groups I've talked about like there's a Canada wide one Ontario wide group wide and I've seen stories you know you know warning don't trade with this person blah blah blah
1: I've only ever had one bad experience in all the tr- well I've had a number of unpleasant experiences where my trade partner was obnoxious or took too long to ship or or was just mean or or something but the only time that i've ever really been shafted in a transaction was actually an in-person math trade and that was just because somebody had accidentally listed their edition as the wrong edition i wanted a specific edition they had listed it as that edition and i had traded for it but then when it came time to actually get the game it was the wrong edition and it was useless to me uh, but that you know that was an honest mistake i'm i have to be tolerant of idiots it is the way of things math trading is 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 really cool that was that was actually in a math trade. Uh, I've had great success with local ones in Toronto if you live, in uh, close to a major city, then chances are good that every once in a while there's going to be a big math trade. And math trade is just, if if you're not familiar with them, basically it's a series of ways to automate triangular trades. You know, A has something B wants and B has something C wants and C has something A wants. A and B can't trade with each other because there's no overlap in terms of their wants. But, you know, you, if you just work the system and that's what the math trade does on a, on a very large scale uh my copy of a feast for odin i got into math trade and that was a wonderful acquisition i quite frankly underpaid for it <laughs> as well which was wonderful and but again if everyone's happy if everyone walks away happy then that's that's marvelous that's that's commerce for you so i encourage you if if you uh want to go do some research on math trades if, if it sounds something like you're interested in go go forth and do it i've had nothing but good experiences the way i was except gonna... that one
0: time the way I was going to describe it was like a—it's a spider web. Other than a triangle, it's like this crazy spider web, you know, where the ga- where games go in all different directions, and they're all given this value, and then they all go to the people they want. Everyone gets what they need. And
1: well, it's and not even that they're given an abstract value. That—that's why it works so well. It's individuals stipulating what they're willing to trade for it. Now, some systems do indeed work in some sort of abstracted value system. I, I've never—I've never messed with those, and and indeed, I don't like. Uh, resting too hard on what, you know, some sort of abstracted market value tells you the game is worth. I would just rather, you know, find people that are willing to sort of more holistically gauge their wants.
0: So my best experience has been the convention bring and buys because you don't have to pay for shipping. It's easy paperwork. You just list all your games. Usually there's three different prices you can give it. It's going to start at this. At two o'clock, it's going to change to this. And then at five o'clock, it's going to change to another thing. I've loaded off 40 games all of them sold, you know, come back at the end of the night, collect your money, and you're done.
1: Well, there is one one exception though. One of
0: your games did get stolen in that context. It's also true. Yeah, I went to pick up one game didn't sell. It said zombie zombop, zompop zip zompopolix. Zombabees. Zomba bees. Zomba bees. No, was it Zomp? It was zepocalypse zomb- Z That's how you enunciated. Z Pocalypse. And it wasn't my copy had uh, you know, a bunch of expansions in it and the only one that was left was one that was just the base game so it wasn't mine mine was you know taken away but other than that I've had nothing but good experiences so has there ever been a game you got you've gotten rid of that you regretted doing so not that I can think of I guess there was a bunch of Mighty Empire stuff that I got rid of once that I wish I had kept and I didn't really get rid of it I I actually like glued have you ever seen played Mighty Empires or seen Mighty Empires it was a games workshop campaign system but it was also like a game you could just play by itself had these awful combat system where you picked one of three cards and you like anyway it was awful combat system but anyway I took all the tiles glued them all to this board and made this massive fantasy battle campaign and pretty well destroyed you know three separate copies of Mighty Empires which (laughs) on the secondary market go now go for a huge price I see So what we didn't talk about are reasons why you would get rid of a game. We sort of skipped over that whole front part that I have on my list here. And we have to go by my list, Mark. It's very important or else, you know, I'll lose my place. Another game does it better. Absolutely. When another game comes out and one of your old games this new game does a certain mechanism or gives you the same feeling, but just better, then it's time to get rid of the older one.
1: I used to think that that was a very clear way to do things, but the problem is I find that based on your enthusiasm for various types of mechanisms, your typology starts getting more and more and more specific. For example, if you're the biggest fan in the world of auction games, you know, one one auction game, because it's the best auction game, is probably not going to cut it. Because then you're going to start saying, well, you know, this is my best once-around auction game. This is my favorite Dutch auction system. This is my favorite auction system with an area majority element, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas, if you don't really care about auction games, you might be happy with 0 or 1 and say that it's the best. I found that this is definitely the case for me when it comes to... Ever increasing specificity of niches about how, well, yeah, this isn't my absolute favorite two player skirmish game, but it's different from all my other two player skirmish games. That having been said, I'm, a, as I've already admitted, I'm an inveterate collector and I'm very, very bad at making these kinds of decisions.
0: All right, then there's the other side of the coin where a game comes out and it does nothing new. Older games do it better. This just comes out with a, you know, a blah system of mechanisms that other games already have and they just do it better, faster, quicker, nicer.
1: That is definitely again to talk about auction games. That's definitely why I've kept Raw and gotten rid of a lot of other auction games. That's why I've kept El Grande and gotten rid of a lot of other area majority games. And it very you know, and it's just helpful as a safeguard against the cult of the new as well. When you're able to remind yourself, yeah, there's a 20 year old game that's just infinitely better in almost all ways. All of this needs to be tempered by a number of crucial characteristics. One of them is player count. Right, Because sometimes a game can be inferior overall, but it can be more flexible in terms of player count. El Grande is the greatest area majority game I've ever played, and I I would rather play it over any other area majority game, but it's best with four or five. If I've got two or three, then I can pull out a different game. But again, I'm an inveterate collector. Same thing with... Any, you know, best in class, it might not be best at a certain player count, and sometimes it's the player count that drives the kind of game you want to acquire anyway. Sometimes it's not like I want to find a good auction game or I want to find a good worker placement game. Sometimes it's just, I very frequently have six six people show up, I don't have any good six player games, I need a good six player game. Of course, the more the more people are involved, the more likely that they're gonna that one of them is gonna take a strong dislike to it. Which is why finding good six player games is easy, but finding a good six player game that will hit the table is very hard.
0: Yeah, call them utility games. Like I'm keeping this game only because of this reason. Blah blah blah. Realize a good way to put this: many reasons why a game will just disappoint you when you play it. I.e., what I'm talking about here is i.e. the hype. The hype was huge, and when you played it, you didn't have as much fun as you thought. Or while you're playing it. There was so many missed opportunities that while you're playing, so like, oh, if they had only done this or why didn't they do it this way or why aren't these components better or why didn't they do it this way? Why did they do it that way? And just that huge disappointment just doesn't make you want to play the game again.
1: For you especially, I have found that if there's a game that you hate, you're usually able to shrug and, and say, oh, well, you know, it was reasonably designed. It's just not for me. But if there's a game that is derivative in precisely the right way that isn't novel in in just precisely the right way at the end of it you'll be visibly angry and you're like why why does this game exist this has no justification for existing screw this
0: game yeah that is definitely one of the points that makes me the most upset about games is when there's a missed opportunity and i think i messed felt it the most with i don't remember what exactly what it was about empires the void 2 it is a very forgettable game in a lot of ways. Which part of it was a missed opportunity? I think it was the maybe. It was, oh, I think it was the cards. Remember the action cards? Yes, you were very disappointed in the cards and yes. the fact that there was really interesting stories and conflicts in the cards, but you use them for everything, and it's just like, oh, but that's the whole theme, and now you're just throwing. Uh, and anyway, let's move along. To the next point is just no one wants to play it. You enjoy yeah. it, but no one else does, and. There's no reason to have it on your shelf. I'm, no I'm, one's going to play it.
1: I've got that written down too. Local preferences.
0: I, I see why you'd have that written down. Because doesn't that pretty well... Most of your games fall into that category, don't they? <sighs> well, not most of them. It's just they, they stand out most
1: often because they're the ones that I occasionally make a quixotic attempt to, to play. Like, remember remember this? This is great. And <laughs> everyone's like, oh, Yeah. That one. <laughs> and then we go on and play Scythe again, which is fine. Scythe is fun. <laughs> and then
0: we play Scythe again. Which
1: is fine. I, I I like Scythe. It's a good utility game. Some of the games that I got rid of and then had to go and get back were because I moved and I knew that, you know, my regular gaming partner who loathed the game wasn't gonna be around anymore. Sadly, you know, sometimes this works in reverse. And sometimes I can't bring myself to get rid of a game. For example, the local group that we're around will never play the resistance over secret hitler ever 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 and that is because they are wrong and they are fools each and every one of them but i'm never going to get rid of the resistance for one because it's really small right if it were a bigger game then things things might be different but it's a small box game but the resistance as far as i'm concerned is best in class and it's one of my favorite games so i'll never get rid of it and in fact even if i had a much much smaller game collection i would still never get rid of it now, I have the luxury of being in a position of never getting rid of it, even if a game were much more sprawling. But, for example, Cthulhu Wars is a huge, very expensive product, and I don't think it's best in class. I'm very, very glad to have it, but it's certainly not what I would consider to be you know, the the the, the utmost in terms of multiplayer asymmetric combat games. If nobody around here liked it, I would probably start thinking about how to flip it. And there are a number of ways to do that for a large, expensive thing. But, you know, there's local enthusiasm, so I'm very, very keen to keep it around. So there's obviously some sort of tipping point at, you know, cost or size if there's no local enthusiasm. You're right to mention, and I appreciate your sympathy
0: for my having to deal with your awful taste in games. Cough. All right, next point. When a new edition of a game comes out.
1: Oh, dear Lord, yes. (laughs) I refer to this as... um, this is a terrible term I refer to this as an up trade you have to upgrade and you do you try to do so by trading it's tough it's tough to be done some of my best trades have been getting rid of like the first or second edition at the same time as uh, in, in a trade at the same time as trading for the newer edition it can be done but it's hard
0: and I' almost, I almost always fall into this because because I'm an old Warhammer player and I've always had to deal with people saying oh the first edition second edition third edition these were all better we're gonna play with this one instead and it's like no. <laughs> you, you, and and I, at first, I think I, I might have fallen into that category. But you know, what are you going to do? Play the old edition that nobody knows or nobody plays, or are you going to you know stay live? And it shows that the company is at least supporting that product.
1: I prefer, obviously. Then, of course, this, this dovetails with some discussions we've had before about the right way to go to a next edition. And obviously, Games Workshop has had a long history of doing it the wrong way. Whereas I would hold up games like Infinity as doing it the right way. You know, don't obsolete components, just, rele- just release new rules documents and make sure that everything is playable. Fantasy Flight is another company that seems to be marching in, in, in the Games Workshop tradition of, well, we could make everything compatible if we just released the proper rules documents. But uh, why don't you pay 200 bucks and upgrade packs instead?
0: Which, <sighs> I mean... Fla- yeah, Flames of War, same thing. Yep. It's like you show up at your local retailer with your old book. They give you a new book for free. Yep. All your old models are fine great company so in those cases
1: getting rid of the older editions can be super difficult if the materials have literally been obsoleted now some people don't care and obviously it depends on how much has changed but yeah there's nothing like a new edition to 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 make the price of something plummet on the secondary market
0: like i said i've only done culling twice that being said i have board games in several different locations across the city I have an active collection here now, and I have board games stored in all sorts of different places. And I find it hard to sell games. It's something I've collected. I enjoy doing it. And it's it could be that feeling, and maybe it's this overarching feeling that when you sell it to someone for a, le- a lower price or a lesser price, they're going to immediately, instead of playing the game, I will give people games for free if I know they're going to play it. Absolutely. If I have a feeling that they're just going to turn around and sell it for more money... That I could have made, for whatever reason, I think that just drives me no end to insane.
1: I can sympathize with that, but at the same time, I tend to view that as a sort of, you know, market situation where everyone walks away happy. You didn't want it anymore... And it's gone, and so you're happy that way. And the other person's happy because they get their money. And presumably also the third person who bought the thing is happy because they were able to get the thing that they wanted. I've had one major purge and two smaller ones. And the the, the major purge was when I was moving from a relatively large apartment to a very tiny one. This is when I moved from Cambridge to Toronto. And what I did was I found somebody locally who actually likes cataloging things and then running a whole bunch of eBay sales and other kinds of things like that. I don't know' it was sick mind of course, but you know some of the things I enjoy doing make people uh, think that I, I must be wrong in the head. and he took everything that I had and well there was one game he wanted to keep, which was aliens which was worth a couple hundred bucks. And he just started forwarding me 10% of everything he made from everything he sold. And so I just got some steady income from everything. And I was perfectly happy with that. 10% was more than I was going to get out of it if I was left exclusively in charge. The other two major times that I've done purges, I've just made a list of everything I wanted to get rid of. And I sent emails to friends and saying, take whatever you want. All that I ask is just give a donation to a charity of your choice for any game you want to take. And that, I think, a good balance of just giving things away and uh, and selling them. Because, you know... If I needed to figure out how to price them, if I needed to figure out all these other things, and I don't like taking money from friends, it just it just makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm I, you know I have that deep uncomfortability about talking about money or, or, or things like that. It's a, it's one of my many hangups.
0: So we have another friend that does it in an interesting way. He has like his annual board game purge, and everyone looks forward to, looks forward to it and asks for this email list, yeah. and and he sells quite a few games that way.
1: The way he seems to do it is he will just price things to move aggressively. You know, he'll sell a $60 game for 15 or he'll sell a $120 game for 30 because he just wants to get rid of them. And that's fine too. Like, I'm uncomfortable taking money from friends, but I'm more than happy to give money to friends. There you go. Well, with that in mind, we are now going to divest ourselves of this podcast for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email dice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if you can. Thanks again for tuning in. We will not see you next week. We will see you the week after, because it is summer, and we would like to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have better things to do, but really we don't. And we hope to see you
0: again soon. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Take care, everyone.